Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of domestic abuse, gore, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. At first, Lucy Klosowski couldn't believe the news. Her estranged husband, Severino, had been arrested in London. The paper said he murdered three women. It was 1902. Lucy hadn't seen Severino in years, but that didn't make it any easier to process. She shared a child with this man, after all. But the more Lucy thought about it, the more it made sense. Severino had been abusive throughout their entire relationship. At one point, he shoved Lucy onto a mattress and covered her mouth so she couldn't scream for help. Later, Severino said he wanted to slice off her head and bury her remains in their room. At the time, she didn't want to believe it, but there was no denying it now. Severino Klosowski was a killer. And according to some investigators, he might have been one of the most prolific murderers in London. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the Thames Torso Murders. Last week, we learned how a faceless killer turned the Thames into a river of death. This week, we'll cover his final crimes and explore one leading theory about his real identity. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. A year before Jack the Ripper painted the streets of London red, another serial killer made his mark on the city. He was dubbed the Thames Torso Killer. He had a penchant for chopping his victims into pieces and dropping their remains all around the winding river. By the summer of 1888, he'd killed at least two women. But the Torso Killer was about to be upstaged. In November of 1888, Jack the Ripper murdered his sixth victim. This sent the East End into a state of panic. It also forced the Metropolitan Police to put any investigation into the Torso Killer onto the back burner. They needed to find the Ripper first. 
This allowed the torso killer to scoot right under their noses. In June 1889, he killed and dismembered a third victim. Her name was Elizabeth Jackson. Her remains were sprinkled all over the city. A shoulder near Copington's Wharf, a leg near Wandsworth Bridge, and her liver near Wapping. At the time of her death, Elizabeth was 24 years old and at least seven months pregnant. The baby had been removed from her womb. This led investigators to think that the killer was a back-alley doctor. It looked like he tried to perform an abortion on Elizabeth before he killed her. This procedure was considered a crime in 19th century London, which meant that there was no paper trail. The authorities tried to investigate under the table doctors in the area, but they were unsuccessful. So the torso killer continued to roam freely around the East End, and just three months later, police found another body. On September 10th, 1889, Constable William Pennant made his usual rounds on Pynchon Street. It was just a few miles from the new Scotland Yard construction site where the torso killer's second victim was found back in 1888. It was also just over a mile from Castle Alley, where one of Jack the Ripper's victims had been slain. Due to the Ripper's crimes, police were on high alert. Constables like Pennant were stationed all across the East End at all times of the night. They hoped this constant surveillance would catch him once and for all. Around 5.25 a.m., Pennant wandered past a row of railway arches. He noticed an odd shape on the ground. He quickly realized that it was a woman's torso. Her head and legs were missing, and her stomach had been cut into. No doubt it was gruesome, but Pennant didn't panic. He kept his wits about him and remembered that he'd patrolled that same area about 15 minutes earlier. He was certain that the remains were not there before. The constable called for backup. It seemed like the killer was nearby. Within minutes, policemen were swarming the scene. They were worried that this was Jack the Ripper's doing and ventured out across the city to find him. But ultimately, all they found were three men who had dozed off near the crime scene. Wake up. I'm sleeping here. What the dickens do you want? A woman's torso was just discovered, mere yards from you. Did you see anyone suspicious coming through the area? Suspicious? This is the East End, Constable. Everyone's up to no good. Yeah, and what about you? What brings you out here tonight? I didn't have enough money for lodgings. Figured this was a good enough place as any to rest my eyes. If I'd known I'd be awakened by all of Scotland Yard, trust me, I would have found another spot. The other two men had similar stories. They'd fallen asleep after a night of drinking and were rudely awoken by a flurry of officers. In their inebriated state, they probably couldn't even hold a knife, much less kill someone with it. The police still assumed that this victim was killed by Jack the Ripper and were frustrated to see him slip into thin air once again. The only evidence they could rely on was the woman's remains. Medical examiners had successfully identified a few of the Ripper's victims already. Perhaps this one would bring them a little bit closer. 
As the sun began to rise, Dr. P. John Clark arrived at the railway arch. He noticed that there was some blood on the ground, where the woman's neck had been. If she'd been killed at the scene, he'd expect to see a lot more than that. This meant she was probably murdered somewhere else and dumped on the street. Dr. Clark took the remains to a mortuary and carefully examined them. Then he led a group of doctors through his findings. I'd say the victim is somewhere between 30 to 40 years of age. Her head and legs have been skillfully separated from the body. She has a 15-inch cut down the abdomen. No organs seem to be missing, but there appears to be a gap in the stomach area. A gap? You think she was pregnant? Hard to say on that one, but it's certainly possible. This doesn't seem like the Ripper. Dr. Clark, did you say something? I... I'm just reminded of a case from not too long ago. A woman's torso was found in the basement of the Scotland Yard site. I remember that one. Elizabeth Jackson. Yes, that's her. An unborn child had been cut from her womb. Perhaps just like this victim before us. Dr. Sergeant, what time do you place our victim's death? I'd say about 24 to 36 hours before discovery. Don't you think that's odd? All the other Ripper murders happen right there on the street. They've been messy and raw, with blood everywhere. But this was slow and exacting, and it happened somewhere else, hours or days before the drop-off. Do you think the Ripper is changing his pattern? No, I don't think this is the Ripper at all. Within 24 hours, the police put out a report saying as much. The recent Pynchon Street murder was committed by someone other than Jack. At first, the authorities said that the Pynchon discovery was an abortion gone wrong. But eventually, they connected it to the Thames Torso Killer. This brought his official death toll to four. Unfortunately, medical examiners were never able to identify the body. It didn't bring them any closer to finding the mysterious criminal. Once again, the torso killer was free to murder with impunity. But after the body was found on Pynchon Street, he seemed to vanish. Thirteen years would pass before the thin veneer of peace would be shattered once again. Coming up, the torso killer comes out of retirement. It's been said that art is in the eye of the beholder. But what about greed or chaos? Hi, it's Richard from the Spotify original from Parcast, Unexplained Mysteries. This September, join us as we comb through the clues of some of the greatest art mysteries of all time. The Lost Da Vinci, the fake Rothko, the real identity of Banksy. If you've never listened to Unexplained Mysteries before, there's no better time to dive in than with this fantastic five-part special. You can also find hundreds of other mystifying stories and new episodes each week by following Unexplained Mysteries, free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to our story. Thirteen years came and went. During that time, the paranoia surrounding the Thames Torso Killer and Jack the Ripper calmed down. The former hadn't killed since 1889, and the latter stopped making waves in 1891. While the East End still had its problems, the area felt safer in 1902. What's more, London's Metropolitan Police had created protocols to stop the city's next serial killer in their tracks. It seemed like the nightmare was over. Of course, that's exactly when the Thames Torso Killer returned from the dead. At least that's according to true crime writer R. Michael Gordon. Gordon believes the notorious serial killer reappeared in the summer of that year. While we can't confirm Gordon's theory, we do know that a body was found that seemed to fit the Torso Killer's M.O., It was discovered by two workers from Dalton's Pottery Works in the early morning hours of June 8, 1902. The men had just finished their shift and stepped into Salamanca Alley, a short passageway just south of the Thames. They were in for a grim surprise. Hi, Moonsir, what do you say we grab a pine over at Crown after this? At Klosowski's old dump? (laughs) He's a curmudgeon! Why would you want to go there? Because his pores are heavy and his drinks are cheap, and you never pay your share. (laughs) Hey, come on now. Jesus. Moonser, are you seeing what I'm seeing? That can't be right. Is that a... head? The two laborers could hardly comprehend what they were seeing. A woman's body had been cut into ten pieces. Her severed arms, legs, torso, and pelvis were stacked one on top of each other. At the very top of the pile was her head, and it seemed to be staring right at them. They stood there for a moment, frozen in shock. Then they ran to alert the local constables. Around 5 a.m., authorities began an intensive search. They wheeled the victim's remains to a mortuary where two police surgeons examined them. This makes no sense at all. What? All the parts match up, but look at the victim's skin. The trunk looks burnt, almost like she's been cooked. Yeah, but take a look at her arm. I think this one's been boiled. The other was stuck in an oven, and her face, it looks like it's been subjected to some moist heat. And what does this all mean? It means the killer cooked the victim in different ways. Boiling, baking, steaming. Jesus, why would anyone do that? Probably to make it impossible for us to identify her. Look, he's even pried away some of her teeth. He's erased any part of her that might tell us who she is. Erased? Henry, doesn't this remind you of the torso killer? He'd leave body parts all around the Thames, a thigh here, a forearm there, With the exception of one woman, no one could identify the other victims, like they'd been erased. What are you getting at? Well, maybe he's come back. 
13 years later? That seems like a stretch. Stretch, sure, but entertain this idea for a second. The killer targets women, cuts them up, and drops their remains near the Thames. That pottery shop is right next to the river, is it not? Perhaps he was making his way there, and then he saw one of the watchmen and panicked. Instead of dumping the parts in the river, maybe he just dropped them and ran. Okay, but the Thames killer has never left behind a victim's head before. Why would he leave one now? Just like you said, it's been 13 years since his last known kill. Maybe he's changed, or maybe he's gotten a little rusty. That's a lot of maybes. Look at the cuts on his body. They're amateur at best. Probably done with a carpenter's saw. Everyone said the torso killer was some kind of surgeon, didn't they? Well, any doctor would be ashamed to leave marks like this. Later that day, investigators found the remains of a baby. The infant had been hit on the head and left to die in a pile of trash. It was just a few minutes' walk from Salamanca Alley. There was no evidence to prove that the woman and infant were related, but if this was the work of the torso killer, it added to the theory that he was a back-alley doctor. Perhaps the woman found in Salamanca Alley was one of his patients, and she died on the operating table. If that was the case, the killer had an incentive to obscure her identity. His own life and career was on the line. Then again, the authorities ultimately decided that the two cases were unrelated. Nothing came from the second discovery, and no one was convicted in either case. The investigators were more stumped than ever before. Ever since the Torso Killer's first murder, the authorities had argued over his professional background. Some investigators thought that he was an educated doctor with lots of surgical experience. Others were certain that he was a lower-class butcher or hunter. But between the 1902 murder and today, a lot more theories have been thrown around. One involved a group of professionals who not only had the same skill set as doctors and butchers, but also existed between the two social stratospheres. Barbers. Back in the day, people didn't just go to the barber shop for haircuts. They often sought medical treatment there, too. The practice started in the Middle Ages with people known as barber surgeons. Like any skilled barber, barber surgeons knew how to work a sharp blade. In addition to cutting hair, they sliced off moles, performed bloodletting, and amputated limbs. People saw them as general practitioners. These types of barber shops had mostly fallen out of fashion by the late 19th century, but a few were still operating in London, and they were clustered in lower-income areas, like the East End. According to writer R. Michael Gordon, it's possible that the Thames Torso Killer operated out of one of these very shops. What's more, in his book, The Thames Torso Murders of Victorian London, Gordon shines a light on a particular barber who might have been responsible for the murders. Coming up, the life and crimes of Severino Klosowski. Now back to the story. According to true crime writer R. Michael Gordon, the Thames Torso Killer may have committed his fifth and final murder in 1902. After that, he disappeared for good. 
There are a lot of conflicting theories about where he went and who he was, but most researchers seem to agree upon a few key facts. One, the torso killer had some experience in the medical field and knew his way around a dead body. Two, he had access to specific tools like sharp knives and saws. And three, he lived in the East End of London between 1887 and 1889. Then he might have returned to the city in 1902 to commit his last murder. It's a pretty specific description, but according to Gordon, one man fits it to a T. Some knew him as George Chapman. Others called him Petachenko, but his real name was Severino Klosowski. The authorities first learned about Severino in the fall of 1902, when they were investigating the death of his girlfriend, 18-year-old Maud Marsh. The young woman died after ingesting poison, and the investigators wondered if Severino was to blame. 36-year-old Severino operated a pub on the East End, which made him easy to find. <laughs> Officers, what can I get for you today? Inspector Godley, take your men and check the back. Yes, sir. Whoa, 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 hey, now, you guys can't come in here and go through everything. This is my property. Save it, Severino. We know what you did to your girl. The amount of antimony in her system was off the charts. Chief! Chief Aberlein, I found something. Take a look at this. If you're not Severino Klosowski, then why do you have papers with his name written on it? I can explain. I swear, this is all a mistake. Tell it to the judge. For now, you're under arrest for the murder of Maud Marsh. Severino was sent to jail in late October 1902. The authorities continued to look into his background and realized that Maud wasn't his only victim. Two more women had died under almost identical circumstances. All three victims were found to have high doses of tartar emetic in their system. In small doses, this medication was used to induce vomiting. In large doses, it was fatal. With that, the 36-year-old was charged with three murders. The media even gave him a nickname, the Burrow Poisoner. When the suspect stood trial, he insisted that they had the wrong man. He swore up and down that he wasn't Severino Klosowski. Even when his second wife, Lucy, took the stand and stated otherwise. Thank you for being with us here today. Can you please tell us your name and how you know the defendant? My name is Lucy Klosowski, and I am Severino's wife. How long have you two been married? Officially, just over 13 years now, but we were only together for three during your time together, did you notice any questionable behavior? I did. Can you extrapolate? How did it all start? It happened in waves. Severino was always in and out of jobs, so we kept moving around the East End. It was hard, but he made things even harder by staying out at all hours of the night. Many mornings, I'd wake up and see him coming home, and I could smell the other women on him. When I'd say something about it, he'd get angry and violent. It was awful. Then, we lost her first child, and 
March of 1891. I needed a fresh start, somewhere far, far away. So we packed up, moved to America, and my husband opened up his own barbershop in New Jersey. But all we did was change the backdrop. He was still the same man who did the same things. He'd stay out late at night, and he couldn't control his... his... I'm sorry. Please, take all the time you need. In New Jersey, we were living in the back of a barber shop. One day, we got into another argument, and he got so angry with me. He... he threw me down onto a mattress, and I remember trying to scream for help. But he pressed his lips down against mine so I couldn't make a sound. Later, he told me he wanted to kill me. He said he could slice off my head and bury it beneath a floorboard. He, he said that no one would ever find out. I was pregnant with our second child. And I was trying to be strong. I told him that people would ask where I went, but he said that no one would miss me. Did he become violent during this conversation? He was definitely heading toward it. I saw the glint in his eye. But just then, someone walked into the shop asking for a haircut and distracted him. I think that's the only reason he didn't kill me that day. Could you please point your husband out to us, Lucy? Yes. He's sitting right there. That man is Severino Klosowski, and he's more than capable of murder. With Lucy's damning testimony, the authorities realized that the borough poisoner may have been responsible for more than three murders. Investigators dug deeper into Severino's life and discovered that his movements synced up perfectly with the torso killings. What's more, they learned that the 36-year-old barber turned pub owner had once had a promising career as a surgeon. Born in 1865, Severino grew up in a rural Polish village. At 14, he left home to become a doctor's apprentice. For the next five years, he lived and worked at a medical facility in Zvolen, a town in Slovakia. There, he learned the art of cupping, bloodletting, and surgery. Severino was so good at his job that he quickly moved up the ranks. This took him away from small-town living and brought him into the hustle and bustle of Warsaw. And in December of 1886, the 20-year-old received his degree as a junior surgeon. Around the same time, he got married. But wedded bliss was not in the cards. By 1887, he packed his bags and his tools and headed to London. The sudden move made no sense. Severino had a promising career in Poland. Yet he decided to abandon his first wife and move to the East End alone. It seemed like he was running away from something. While this has never been proven, some researchers have speculated that he killed someone in Poland. He could have moved to escape the consequences. In any case, Severino was ready for a fresh start. He likely arrived in London at some point between the spring and summer of 1887, 
right before the Thames Torso murders began. After settling down in the city, he began to use various aliases, including the names George Chapman and Petachenko. These alternate identities didn't seem to get in the way of his career, though. He quickly found work as an assistant surgeon and hairdresser. Now remember, back in those days, the line between a barber and a surgeon was blurry. Severino likely spent the next few months trimming beards, slicing off moles, and nursing the sick back to health. Then, in 1888, he suddenly left this job and traveled about three miles east to the area known as Whitechapel. There, he rented a room at George Yard Dwellings. This housing unit was near the center of all the Jack the Ripper murders. It was also close to the New Scotland Yard worksite, where the torso killer's second victim was found. At some point in 1889, Severino moved and opened his own barber shop. This was close to where Elizabeth Jackson's remains were found. It goes without saying that this was a scary time for everyone. And yet, Severino appeared to be unfazed by the torso killer's reign of terror. In fact, just days after Elizabeth's remains were found, he went out and met his soon-to-be wife, Lucy, and the two couldn't be more smitten. A few weeks after meeting, Lucy moved in with him by August of 1889. They lived in an apartment building across the street from Severino's barbershop. And just in front of his shop was Pynchon Street, the road where the fourth torso was discovered. Then, in September of 1890, Severino shook things up once again. He closed his shop and moved to Whitechapel High Street. He got a job as an assistant barber. Then he became the owner. We don't know exactly how that came to be, but it's possible he may have killed the previous barber to claim ownership. In any case, Severino thrived for a period of time. In fact, business was doing so well that he moved Lucy and their son into a better neighborhood. But while Lucy was busy playing house... Severino began walking the East End at all hours of the night. When Lucy confronted him about the late nights and possible love affairs, Severino became abusive. But instead of calling it quits, the two gave their relationship another chance. In 1891, they moved across the Atlantic and set up shop in New Jersey. Curiously, when Severino left the country... The torso killings stopped altogether. The East End finally had a chance to heal. The same couldn't be said of Severino and Lucy. Despite the change in scenery, nothing about their relationship got better. Lucy reached her breaking point in January of 1892. She returned to the East End alone. Five months later, Severino followed her footsteps and wormed his way back into her life. The couple gave their relationship another shot, until Severino returned to his old ways and left Lucy for good. Just like before, he took on new aliases, jumped from job to job, and got into one relationship after another. These other women weren't as lucky as Lucy, though. They were the ones he poisoned. Severino was eventually convicted of killing all three of them and was sentenced to hang at Wandsworth Prison. 
In the years since, many have wondered if he was actually the torso killer, Jack the Ripper, or both. He had both surgical experience and the means to kill, and his movements across the Atlantic match up with the torso killer's crimes a little too neatly. But we can't say anything for certain. While no one has come to a clear conclusion about who the torso killer was, we do know this. After Severino Klosowski was executed in April of 1903, the torso killer seemed to disappear. He never returned to the East End again. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next time with a new episode. For more information on the Thames Torso Murders, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Thames Torso Murders of Victorian London by R. Michael Gordon and the Thames Torso Murders by M.J. Tro extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Rivera. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Jane O., edited by Kylie Harrington and Giles Hofseth, fact-checked by Catherine Barner, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Freddie Beckley. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Joe Hernandez, Laith Walshlager, Nazee Tarsha, and Rebecca Thomas. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 